If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 1. We're going to be there shortly. I feel like every message should start with Genesis 1. If you ever find yourself listening to a message and they say, well, let's go back to creation. Let's look at the fall. Don't find that annoying. Find that to be a great start to a gospel-centered message. Starting with the creation, God being ruler, sustainer, sovereign, and then rejoice that it then turns into a biblical understanding of man's depravity and our desperate need for God. I want to thank uh, Brother Rudy last week for speaking on kind of an intro to the a biblical worldview on the LGBT agenda, homosexuality and, and gender issues and things like that. And uh, again, one of the biggest things, and I, I keep ruining it, Rudy, but this, this type of understanding and worldview is what? What did you say? It's a ungodly belief system. Awesome. And, and really, as I chewed on that, that is the issue with all false worldviews. Always that we look at things outside of biblical perspective is an ungodly belief system. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to discuss the topic now of marriage, remarriage, divorce, and courting or dating, whichever term you prefer. I'm okay with either as long as it's a biblical understanding of what that means, but we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. However, as we begin uh, this journey tonight, we're going to start with marriage itself. You, you think like, okay, if you're going to have a discussion about a biblical worldview of, of marriage and dating and remarriage and divorce, you should start with courting and dating and then work your way into marriage and then talk about remarriage and divorce. But I think the right way to do it is to start with marriage. Uh, because I think that uh, courting, biblical courting, or a biblical understanding of remarriage and divorce really has to come secondary to a correct biblical understanding of what marriage actually is. So we're going to look at questions like, what is the purpose of marriage? What was the design? Who instituted it, created it? Who rules over it? What does it look like in the practical application of daily life? So tonight's focus will be primarily and most prominently on the discussion of marriage. There will be moments where we'll discuss maybe what a courting relationship looks like or the folly of some pursuit of this. There'll be moments where we might discuss uh, the topic of divorce as a part of it, but I want you to know that those Main issues will be discussed in the, the next two weeks after tonight. So in case you're new, don't worry, I'm not giving a recap. In case you're new, what we've been doing this semester is we've been uh, looking at the topics of today and discussing how we cultivate a biblical worldview on some of the most pressing issues. And we've been asking three, sometimes four questions, depending on the topic, each week. Those questions are, number one, what does the culture say about it? Number two, what does the Bible say about it? Number three... How should we live as Christians? And then if necessary, it kind of incorporated in that is how do we actively speak either against it or correct the way of thinking in the world today? How do we expose the deeds of darkness in love for the glory of God? So we begin tonight with how, what does the culture say about marriage? I want to remind you that we will be giving you hands out, handouts this evening that has a couple definitions and it has a highlight of my Two main points in the beginning, my four main points at the end. It has the passage of scripture, and it has a list of the small group questions we'll discuss after the message tonight. So you will be able to take that home with you and look at that even if you stay with small groups. So don't worry if some of these things you feel like uh, you're not able to write down as fast. So what does the culture say about marriage? 
right? Like, where, where do you even begin with, with that kind of a question? Well, most, most dictionaries now define marriage as something like this. As I looked at a lot of definitions, this is typically kind of, if you're to pull them all together, this, and this actually is one of the definitions today of marriage. Listen to this. A state in which two individuals are wholly committed to live with each other in sexual relationship. All right, we're off to a good start. <laughs> Under conditions normally approved and witnessed by their, to, witnessed to by their social group or society. So in other words, as I looked at a lot of definitions, what I pull from what culture believes about marriage is this. It's two people, majority of Americans today at least reject polygamy, right? Two people, regardless of sex, right? So man and man, woman and woman is fine. They are married if, number one, they are sexually involved and are committed to maintaining a common residence. Or they're married if, two, society as a whole doesn't object their relationship. This leaves out bestiality or incest and certain age limits for now, okay? So that's why it says what's an acceptable society because right now, you know, there's age issues according to law. Bestiology is, you know, disgusting, right? Obviously, and incest is, you know, creepy. So the society as a whole would reject those. And I say for now intentionally, right? Because we're, we're heading down a slippery slope where it's like if you're going to justify and draw a line here, why not just push it a little bit further, and then number three, marriage can be, uh, it could be considered marriage if someone can attest to the validity of their living arrangement. Marriage has been in a free fall state for decades now in America. A huge turning point, and many of you who were, okay, many of you, some of you who were maybe alive during this time uh, would remember this. Mike, when were you born? Okay, now you. Well, you were, you were born right in the middle of it. The sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s. This was a huge, huge turning point in marriage, in sex, in relationships, and what culture said about it. It was at this point that sexual intercourse could be experienced recreationally. Why do I say that? And by the way, I'm not saying that people didn't have recreational sex before. I'm just saying that it took a big turn here. In fact, Heather, can you pull me back a little bit? Because I'm like wanting to speak a little bit more and I don't want to blow your eardrums out. That's good. All right. Uh, people obviously were having recreational sex and just sex, you know, for fun before the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s. What I mean is that why this is a turning point is because all of a sudden you've got the use of contraceptives and you've got birth control that now comes into play, and so this brought a whole new depth of sexual freedom, especially in America. You add this to the growing entertainment business of television, of movies, and you have celebrities and sex idols and sex figures, and this leads to pornography being readily available and having deep depths, and people are uh, able to access it pretty freely. We've talked about this a few times this semester already. Then you have more tolerance and encouragement of the homosexual movement. All of this has kind of been a birth or gone pedal to metal ever since the sexual revolution of the 50s and 60s. And ever since this started happening, there's obviously and naturally been a natural and gradual change in marriage and how culture defines marriage, what its purpose is, and how people view marriage. Because now, 
you can have sex without having babies. Then you can have cohabitation without marriage. You can live together and enjoy all the benefits of being married, but and the responsibilities, and you can peace out anytime you want. And if you're not married, then you can't really consider the relationship to be exclusive. So there's maybe some freedom to have multiple partners or relationships. Then you have no-fault divorce come into play. It used to be illegal to have divorce unless there's a necessary cause. Now there's no-fault divorce. You can just leave if you fall out of love with them. Then you have homosexual marriage. So you can see how the temperature has changed drastically in just the last 40 or 50 years. We need to understand the progression and the seriousness of the sin. We need to understand the consequences of defining things according to culture. Because culture is ever-changing, and culture's claim to truth is ever-changing. But today, the sexual revolution has gotten even stronger. I mean, take a look at what men and women are allowed to wear in public, or the beaches or at schools today compared to even 20 years ago, let alone 40 years ago, let alone 60 years ago. Look at what... And modesty and sexuality is revealed in, in language and appearance on things like commercials or television shows, right? Or movies and, and how the standard of a PG-13 or rated R has become more and more like just vulgar and crass and crude. I mean, I remember growing up and it was like in the 90s, Dave, you can definitely not wear a PG-13 or watch, wear, watch a PG-13 movie today. And, and here I am, you know, my, my parents hid me in Forrest Gump. Right? A couple places. If you've seen Forrest Gump, you know what I'm talking about. And, and today it would be like, oh, thank goodness that's all that's in the movie. Right? You know what I mean? Because it's changed so much. You can look at how pornography is available right at your fingers. You look at dating apps or hookup apps that are available. You look at the discussion of gender and sexuality that's taking place in schools and is now being taught in some curriculum. Now you've got kindergartners who go home because they've read a book about a person in school who has two dads. And the teacher's reading this kind of book openly in school. Now they're, they're pushing, especially in Dover. I've been a part of this fight for the last several months. But now there's a desire that actually a school can be engaged in helping and aiding a student determine what sex he wants to be. And they can have the authority to come in and help a child determine this without the knowledge of parents. It's sick what is happening in our world today. In fact, today, marriage rates are at an all-time low. Did you know that even though our population has increased, fewer people are getting married? I mean, why would they, right? If you reject God, okay, if you don't have a biblical standard for marriage, why get married? Why the work? Why the drama? Why the stress? I can cohabitate with them. I can have sex. I can be free. Marriage would be slavery and foolish is how many people view it. Not only that, but Americans are also now getting married later in life than ever before. And you say, well, why would this be a bad thing? Because the motive here, what happens is they want to be free longer. This isn't a noble reason they want to wait. They want to have multiple partners. They want to pursue a career. They want to have fun while they can, while they're in their prime. Right? So it's pushing off the responsibility of life, which is why you have... Sometimes middle 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 35-year-olds who can sit and spend 60 hours a week on the internet or addicted to pornography or playing video games and have zero responsibility and live in basements, right? All the way up to 40, 45, 50 because we've created a culture of laziness and lack of discipline. They want to do what they want to do for longer. Nobody wants to grow up anymore. Young Americans are having more children outside of marriage than ever before today as well which throws a wrench in their non-committal plan of relationships. 
It also explains the breakup of the American family, right? It pours into the difficulty of single-parent homes. And much of the poverty that's in our nation today is due to children growing up without families, without parents. It's also discipling and raising a generation who doesn't know what a home or a family or sex or marriage actually should look like. Cohabitation, literally, Culture says that cohabitation, living together before you're married or in no intention to be married, this is the new normal today. It is now normal to just live together and get married. In fact, many people say, well, why do you want to get married? It is now strange to not live together first. It's strange to be pure before your wedding day. And I say pure, and I shouldn't have used that word because just because you save sex for your wedding day does not mean that you are pure by any stretch of the imagination. I think that is a, a golden calf Right, that we as Christians promote, but really when we teach purity before marriage, we should be teaching the mind, the thoughts, every aspect, boundaries and relations. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Depending on your source, anywhere between 30 and 40 or 40 and 50% of all marriages now end in divorce in America. Basically, just under one in two marriages. And now same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. You see, marriage in our culture today has become either irrelevant or totally selfish, consumer-based. It's oftentimes based on a contract that is an exchange of goods. This is the mentality. It's an exchange of goods. In the moment that you don't keep your end of the bargain, I can leave. There's no lasting covenant commitment. It's about me. It's about temporary happiness and personal gain. Because the moment that marriage gets in the way of my desires, my plans, my finances, my expectations, or my sex drive, I can discard my spouse altogether and start a new life. Today, the concept of marriage is either take it or leave it. It's been defined by a culture that thinks it can recreate marriage. Culture is sought to redefine marriage, to extend its boundaries, to give excessive non-biblical divorce clauses, and and it likes to give the benefits of marriage to those who want it, but want to refuse the discipline and commitment part of marriage. Culture is seeking to be the dictator and ruler and giver of marriage. Now, like every week and every topic, we could spend an exhaustive amount of time telling you what culture says. Rudy, I'm sure that this is one of the things that you've come up with and, and the topics you're doing. I mean, you could literally spend an hour and a half just speaking on what the culture says about these things. But the reality is, is, and we've said this several times, you live in today's culture. Right? Not much of what I could share with you would shock you. You live in, the mar- in, in this culture that's redefining marriage and relationships. In many ways, you probably know some things better than I do. So what I want to do is I want to transition to what will shed the most light on this issue and will actually give us meaning and hope. And that is, what does the Bible say about marriage? I also want to kind of put a little asterisk here and say this. You're going to have the tendency to hear the first part of what does the Bible say about marriage, and kind of, you're going to hear words or passages that you've heard before, and you're going to assume and kind of go, yeah, I know this, and your mind will probably have the tendency to wander. And what I'm going to ask is, because of what is at stake for marriages, and for what this displays about the glory of God, I'm going to ask that you don't allow yourself to be too familiar with the text and the points that we're going to make, but rather that you would ask God, even now in your hearts, to really shed new light on the importance of a biblical understanding of marriage. Cool? All right, so what is the Bible? By the way, that's one good-sounding cry. Whose daughter is that? All right. What does the Bible say? Let's start by turning to Genesis 1. 
Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 26. In verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now flip over to chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no, not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and this is, this is a song. This is a rejoicing. This is a, a song of praise that Adam actually says here. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we start here. And we see a few things here. God created marriage. And God created marriage before the fall. Just like we talk about when God created work before the fall. These are beautiful things. God was involved in the first marriage ceremony. And he instituted it for a specific purpose. It was meeting both the needs of man and it was meeting a design that God had created for to display something about him that we'll discuss. Marriage was God's idea. Now listen, it was his creation. This is why this is crucial. The fact that it was God's idea and God's creation is enough for us who think about the gospel and think about a biblical worldview and you go, hmm, okay, things should be clicking now. Because what do we know? If God is creator, it means that everything has been given a what? A plan and a purpose. And who has determined that plan and purpose? God, the creator. And if God is creator, it also means that he is what? Ruler. He's the ruler of what he has created, which means that God alone gets to determine what is right and wrong. So think about this in the context of marriage. God has created marriage. God has created marriage with a purpose, with a plan. He is the ruler, the Lord over his creation of marriage, which means that God alone gets to dictate what is right and what is wrong about marriage. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that this is a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. Both Jesus and Paul, when speaking of marriage, quote here from Genesis. You see this in the Gospels, like Matthew 19, Luke chapter 20. You see in Ephesians chapter 5 with Paul. We're going to look at all these passages. 
And Jesus and Paul both tell us something important about this passage in Genesis. Paul reveals the answer to the mystery of marriage and the purpose. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit. But Jesus shows us something that I want to look at right now. So if you will turn to Matthew chapter 19 in your Bible. Sword drill. If you know what that is, you grew up in church. Matthew 19. Verse, verse 3. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus started with Genesis 1. <laughs> I love it. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast To his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now look at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We see something crucial in what Jesus says about this passage. We see that marriage is not a human institution, it is not where humans get to join humans together by human authority. The culture does not get the final say here. Verse 6 shows us something very important. It says that it is God who joined together male and female. Now, this is crucial for several reasons. That God is the one who joins together male and female. This means that marriage cannot exist outside of God. Because he is the one that joins them together. Now let me break down what that means in several ways. It does not mean that marriage is only for believers. It is not what that means. Marriage is what we call a gift of common grace, right? It's been given both to believers and non-believers. However, non-believers cannot fulfill the purpose of their marriage, nor glorify God in their marriage. That is a reality that we as believers must understand. They fall short of its design. They fall short of its power. They can absolutely enjoy their marriages, just as a non-believer can enjoy a pizza, right? Common grace, but it lacks meaning, it lacks purpose, it lacks hope, it lacks the Holy Spirit. This also does not mean that God condones all marriages. Many people marry foolishly that should not be married. They've not sought counsel, they've not sought wisdom. In every facet of what that means, they've rushed into it, They've not had intentional conversations. They've not prayed and they found themselves either unequally yoked or in a mess. And this is a reality. God doesn't condone all marriages. But I also want to point out this. That God, who is the one who joins them together, is crucial. And it's male and female because this does not apply. Common grace of marriage is not given to homosexual marriages. And and I want to be very, very, very clear here. There is no such thing as a homosexual marriage. There is no such thing. Marriage was created by God, remember? Remember, so God gets to determine the boundaries of marriage, and he has declared in the Bible that marriage is between a man and a woman. This means that homosexual marriages aren't sinful. They don't exist. Homosexual relationships are sinful, but there is no such thing biblically as a homosexual marriage. 
Now, we're going to be talking about uh, homosexual life and how do you address people who are caught in this sin. We're going to address it. It's a level playing field that there are people who can be Christians who struggle with homosexual thoughts but submit that to Christ, are aware that it's sin, are repenting and, and pleading with God to take away these desires. I believe in all of that. I don't mean to throw homosexuality under the bus as if it's different than any other sin or that it put Christ more on the cross than my own lust or idolatry or anger, right? I, I'm not saying any of that. But we do need to be clear about marriage, that homosexual marriage is not a thing. And culture doesn't get to say it's a thing because culture didn't create marriage. I do want to touch on this very briefly too. We also see here that marriage is monogamous. When Jesus and Paul discuss marriage, they go to the pre-fall perfect marriage instituted by God in the garden with Adam and Eve. They both quote Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, okay? When they refer to marriage, it's design. That it's one man, one woman becoming one. And you might say, a lot of the patriarchs had multiple wives. Does that mean I get two? The answer is no. <laughs> Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, many others practice polygamy. But this is important. When we see this in the Bible, what we find is that polygamy is descriptive in the Bible. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive that they have many wives, not saying we should have many wives. In fact, if you want to think more about this, this isn't the purpose of this evening, you can read Ecclesiastes, you can read Song of Solomon, which shows the folly, the foolishness, and the repercussions that come from the sin of having multiple wives. All right, so back to Genesis 1 and 2. When we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we're reminded of this. We have to start with God in all things. It's the most crucial part about being a Christian. It's the most crucial part about having a biblical worldview. You have to start with God. Because worldviews, convictions, and lifestyles get out of whack when you try to start with man or culture. Because as a man, I'm not being sexist here, as a human, okay, you know what I'm saying? As a man, as a woman, whatever, I am prone to justify. I'm prone to compare. I'm not as bad as this person. I am biased to my own sinful desires and my own delights. I am. So what I will do when I've experienced it, and if anybody has mastered this in your life and you've never done this, you're lying. That's what 1 John says. <laughs> okay? I will push the boundaries and make exceptions. That's what I will do. So if I start with me, I'm starting with a sinful man who's prone to wander, prone to justify, prone to compare, prone to push some boundaries. But God will not do these things. Purity and holiness cannot push boundaries. We've seen this with everything that we've discussed so far this semester. I want you to think about this. Has anybody thought, we're three months into this, has anybody thought about how all of our topics intertwine with one another? How, how corruption in one form of thinking of one topic actually corrupts and leaks into the other one. We talked about vocation, our work. We've talked about money. We've talked about sexual purity. We've talked about abortion. We've talked about LGBT. We're talking about marriage. Let, let me give you an example. Look at, look at work. I'm going I'm to give you a progression, okay? Col look at your work. Culture says in your vocation, in your career, put yourself first. Andrew? I'm going to use you as an example, okay? Andrew, and don't take this advice, by the way. Put yourself first, man. 
Pursue your dreams, no matter the cost. Step on anybody's face you need to in the process. Don't settle for less than what culture is defining as success. Andrew, it's about you. Don't let anyone stop you. In fact, what you should do is you, you should put off marriage because it will get in the way. It's going to slow you down. You're going to have to put, attend to the needs of your spouse. What if you have children? Oh, can you imagine if you had children and ruined your life? And, but, but Andrew, don't wait to satisfy your sex drive until, while you wait for marriage. No, no, man, indulge in that. All right? that. That's a natural thing. You need to, as a man, indulge in your sex drive. So just you know, casual sex. Don't, don't worry about kids, Andrew, because use a condom or make sure she's using birth control. And if she gets pregnant, don't worry, man. It's legal to kill your baby. It's fine. You, f- you feel bad about killing your baby? Why, Andrew? It's, it's not bad. It's, it's legal. Look, 60 million other women have already done it in the last 50 years. Okay? You're, you're hardly going to be judged any more than the other 60 million. What, what's that? No, one's, no one will sleep with you? Well, if you, if you feel like no one will sleep with you, or you feel like sleeping with somebody's too far, have fake sex. Go in a closed room by yourself. Dude, you can have it any way you want. You can see anyone naked you want. What's that? You feel bad about pornography? Don't, man. It's a natural desire. You need it. You need to release. Don't worry about, ever, about how you feel. Everyone else is doing it. It's not demeaning to women, Andrew. They're the ones who are actively involved, and they look like they are enjoying it. Seriously, don't feel bad. Even 70% of Christian men, young adults, have looked at pornography at least once this month. So don't... Don't feel like you are like a bad person for doing that. And, and by the way, if you are going to be selfish and indulge in your own desires and meet all your demands and desires, then you better be willing to say that other people can do this for themselves too, okay? So maybe everybody else wants to do this, but they want to do it with the same sex. And, and honestly, you've already justified all this for yourself. So what's that going to hurt for anybody? Are you going to keep other people from love and their own desires? And, and by the way, if you feel like you want to get married after you start you know, pursuing all these things, can I just caution you? Don't. It'll probably end a divorce. Just live together. And you can protect yourself from having kids. And by the way, if your spouse or like if the person you're living with, you feel like they're getting in the way of your dreams and your desires, just leave them. Because don't worry. About almost one in every two people who get married have a divorce anyways. It's not a big deal. Do you see the progression? Right? Do you see how... One justification of a sin in a worldview about work can drastically lead into anything. Now, you might say, well, that, Dave, that, that's pretty intense. Like, that, that was probably like the, the, the large end, the, the uh, intense end of the spectrum. I'm telling you, it's not. And once you allow for yourself to step outside of what the Bible says or justify just one simple thing in any part of your worldview, the sin just keeps rolling and rolling, and rolling. It's a slippery slope. We don't have the freedom to justify any single matter by ourselves. There's no such thing as a small sin. Say that with me. There's no such thing as a small sin. I've, I've mentioned this a thousand times. I grew up hearing it all the time from my father. Dave, sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you ever thought you would have to give. You have to start with God. Because if you start with man, you're going to fall into a slippery slope of sin. And the lines get blurry. So what's a biblical definition of marriage? And I think uh, Heather has this typed up for us. I want to give us a biblical definition. Okay, The Gospel for Life series gives us this, this definition. Marriage is both a spiritual 
and legal covenant between two complementary counterparts, one biological male and one biological female, through which they are joined together by God in a one flesh union and commit to pursue and enjoy a conjugal, exclusive, indivisible, lifelong love relationship to the glory of God. Now keep that up there for me, Heather. I want you to notice a couple things. It says covenant, right? And we talked before how there's a cultural mindset of marriage being a contract, exchange of goods, and it can be broken if you don't keep your end of the bargain. A covenant is unlike a contract. A covenant is a biblical word. It's biblical language. And by the way, it's biblical language about marriage. You see this in Malachi 2.14. It refers to marriage as a covenant. As did Proverbs 2.17, which shows that adultery and abandonment is breaking the marriage covenant. I want to I highlight two specific parts of this biblical definition of marriage that I think will be helpful for us. And then I want to finish with four applications of how we should live, okay? So the first part I want to highlight, and you can take that off now, Heather, thank you, is that it is pointing to something. There is an imagery and a purpose for which God created marriage. And for this, I want you to now turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to look in verse 31. We're going to begin in verse 22 later on, but I want us to pick up in verse 31 right now for this first part. Paul, like I mentioned, just like Jesus, mentions the Genesis account for marriage. But he shows us something specific. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now he says this mystery. He's, what he's saying is this This marriage, this union is a mystery, but now we can see clearly. It's profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is now crucial for our understanding of the purpose of marriage, for the imagery that we see in marriage. Now, I want to pause, and I want to talk to you about God's glory. And this is crucial when we get to the imagery. I want to talk about God's glory. I've had discussions several times the last few months about defining what God's glory is, okay? So when I, if I have an example, I'm going to use Tyler's example. Some of you may have heard this. It's fine. Many of you have not, and this is going to point to a, a specific purpose for tonight. So Tyler, can I borrow you? Sweet. Everybody say hi, Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Are you getting skinny? Yeah. All right. Tyler, face them. Who here does not know Tyler. Oh, 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 yeah. Okay, Abby, I'm going to use you, all right? You, you stay there. Don't worry, Abby. But I'm going to speak to you, Abby. Okay, Abby does not know Tyler. Abby, I want to tell you a little bit about Tyler, okay? He likes to wear green shirts. Not only that, he likes to wear funky shirts, like shirts that have Star Wars and Muppets and weird things like that, okay? He's married. This is his wife, Shelly, right here. And he has uh, two twins, Carter and Connell. You saw tonight, because you were here, he, he, he plays the drums. Did I say the wrong names? No. Oh, no. One set of twins. Not two twins. That we know. Okay. All right. So, Ty- Tyler. Shelly has an announcement to make at the end of tonight's message. Okay. All right. So, as you also saw, uh, Abby, Tyler plays the drums. Okay. 
Now, sweet. Abby, let's say you go home and stay there, Tyler. Let's say you go home, and all of a sudden, uh, you're having a conversation with your parents, and you're talking about, oh, refuge tonight, and this and that. Yeah, there's like five rows, and the lights looked uh, old school and cool and pretty, and it was neat. There's brick. And, oh, I, I got to meet this guy named Tyler. They're like, oh, I'm talking about Tyler. And you're like, oh, he wears green shirts. Sometimes Muppets. Like, what, what else would you say? He plays the drums. What else? He has twins, and he's married. He has yeah, two twins. Okay, right. So here's what's happening. You are now able to describe the worth of Tyler to your parents based on what you know. And let me ask you a question. Those are all positive things about Tyler. Would you agree? I didn't say anything bad. You can honor Tyler with those facts. Now, for those of you who know Tyler, raise your hand if you know Tyler. Okay, many of you know Tyler. Is that the full extent of who Tyler is? Would you be, would you be satisfied if Tyler died tonight? It's in the Lord's hands, man, for his glory. If you die tonight, praise God, you're going to be with the Lord, okay? And we'll be here for you if that happens. I pray to God you don't die. I'm just saying. For, there's an illustration happening. Stay with me, okay? If, if, if Tyler were to die tonight and we had Abby write the eulogy and it was green shirts, Muppets, plays drums, wife, and two twins, question mark, right? <laughs> Would we who know Tyler be satisfied with that description? No. Why? We know him. What else do we know about Tyler, guys? There's, there's, we, we want to ascribe more worth. To this man. We want to honor him. We want to honor who he is. So what else would we say? He's a great father. What else would we say? He's a man of God. What else would we say? He's hard working. He's selfless. He's like the first one here, the last one to leave. He's a loyal, faithful friend. He's open about his own issues. He seeks counsel. He seeks prayer. He wants to be a faithful husband. We could go on and on and on. We could talk about his parents, his upbringing, the kind of brother he is. We want to ascribe more worth about who he is. So we want to make sure that we show the fullness of Tyler's attributes. Make sense? Have a seat. Good job, Tyler and Abby. Wow, great job, Abby. This is what it means when we talk about the glory of God. When you think of things like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. What that means is that the heavens are displaying a part of God's attributes. When it says that man is made in the image of God, it means that man is revealing part of God's attributes. When it says that creation sings, right, and it's being ruled and reigned by the Lord, it's creating a part of God's rulership, his power, his glory. So when you think of God's glory, it's the fullness of who he is. When we live for God's glory, we live as ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation, image bearers, so that people can know God through us. And not just small eulogies of green shirts and muppets and a a husband and twins. We should not be satisfied with this shallow list of facts about who God is. This is why we pour ourselves and labor and meditate on the word of God. This is what it means when you have a time with the Lord. I want to know you more. I want to know more of the fullness of who you are. Why? Because then I can ascribe more worth to you. Me figuring out more about God does not glorify, give him more glory than he already has, but it allows for me to ascribe more worth in my own thanksgiving, in my own praise, in my own obedience, in my own life, in my own witness and proclaiming of the gospel. 
This is what the glory of God means. When you hear the glory of God, think of the fullness of his attributes and how they ascribe worth to who he is. Does that make sense? So now remember, marriage was created for the glory of God. So what does this mean? It means that marriage was created just like the heavens, just like image bearers, in order to display a specific part or parts of God's glory, to ascribe more worth to who he is. You following? God does everything for his glory. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 10. Beginning in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Now pause. This is like, I mean, when you, when you talk about thanksgiving and praise, when you talk about living for the glory of God, singing for the glory of God, preaching and proclaiming for the glory of God, if you wonder sometimes are people maybe in yourself seem unaffected or a lack of passion about it, it's probably because you only know that God wears Muppet shirts and has a set of twins and is a husband and plays the drums. You're, re- you're reading a shallow eulogy of the Bible. Yeah, the more you know about God, you should be able to read a passage like Revelation 19. We're leading to the marriage supper of the land. And pe- people are going, hallelujah, praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. The Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, the fullness of what he deserves. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright in future. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, which give him glory. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 6 through 10 shows us about what eternity will be like and how it will come into be. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the bride of Christ, the church, coming to the bridegroom, Christ. And notice that we're, we're giving him glory. And notice there's a, a supper that's going to be happening. In fact, if you, if you know the logistics of the Lord's Supper and, and the, final, uh, or the final Lord's Supper, what happens? Christ doesn't drink the fourth cup. Because this is referring to the marriage Feast of the supper where he'll drink the, the fourth cup. We'll drink it with him. It's foreshadowing what's to come. Earthly marriage is a foretaste of this. Your marriage on earth is a foretaste of Revelation 19, 6 or 10 and beyond what we could possibly comprehend. Our marriage should shout, Hallelujah! Our marriage should shout, the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Our marriages should shout, let us rejoice and exult. Our marriages should shout, give God glory. It's a foretaste. It was created to illustrate and draw people into this cosmic love relationship with God. I love this. In my reading and prepping for tonight, there's a lady I came across, Mary Cassian, and she shows us how this imagery works itself out to display God's glory beautifully. 
Right? We just talked about, okay, the fullness of God's attributes. So when you think of the glory of God, you're thinking God's love. You're thinking God's faithfulness. You're thinking God's wrath. It's part of his glory. We'll talk about that in a second. You're talking God's justice, God's sovereignty, God's rule, his reign, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, the fullness of who God is. And Mary says, we can see this in imagery of marriage, ascribing worth and revealing parts of God's glory in a beautiful way. She says this, God created manhood, God created womanhood, God created marriage and sex because he wanted us to have symbols, images, and language powerful enough to convey the idea of who he is and what a relationship with him is all about. She goes on and says this, without this, without manhood, womanhood, sex, marriage, you take these things away, roles in marriage, marriage, and a benefit of marriage, take this away, and we would have a tough time understanding concepts such as desire, or love, or commitment, or fidelity, or loyalty, or intimacy, or oneness, or covenant, or fatherhood, or family. In other words, we would have a hard time apart from this, marriage, understanding God and the gospel. This doesn't mean you have to be married to understand these things. You can look at marriages and see the glory of God in this. Not everyone's called to be married, but everyone's called to see this glory through marriage. And this is why, guys, this is why Satan works so hard to corrupt and destroy and distort the true meaning of manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sex. Because what is Satan in the business of doing? Concealing the glory of God. Blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of the image of God. Paul says, back in Ephesians 5, that this mystery of marriage that God instituted in the garden is profound. It refers to Christ and the church. It has an eternal purpose. And this is what a biblical worldview does in every topic, everything. It seeks to look to the God-ordained purpose of creation. It looks to seek after His rules and His lordship over creation. And it looks to seek after the future hope and glory of His creation. In Luke chapter 20, you don't have to turn there unless you're faster than you can. But in Luke chapter 20, verse 34 to 35, the Sadducees had come to Jesus who don't believe in the resurrection. They only believe in the first five books of the Pentateuch of the Old Testament. They got some wacky ideas And they come and they ask God a question that doesn't really matter to them because they reject the resurrection. And they say, okay, there's a woman, husband dies, Mary's second brother dies, third dies, fourth dies, fifth dies, sixth dies, seventh dies. She married all seven brothers. They've all died. When she goes to heaven, they ask him, who will she be married to in heaven? Jesus says, this age is full of marriage. Remember, it's accomplishing a specific purpose. But in the age to come, we're not married to each other nor given in marriage. Because it will be there that we see the fulfillment of the purpose of marriage. And we will be brought together to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're they're just thinking from such a cultural, man-centered worldview. And this is a concept that can creep people out, honestly. This marriage supper of the land, this being married to Christ. I've had a lot of conversations with men who feel very uncomfortable thinking about being married to the Lord, right? Probably some of you in here, I'm like, oh, this gets a little too intimate and kinky for me. You don't understand it. Then there's some women, honestly, who are just as creepy, 
because there's like this almost seductive intimacy that they think about it. I've had conversations with people uh, who I, 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 our church back in the day went to watch The Passion of the Christ when it first came out. And there was a woman in our church who said she had a hard time watching it because she was so attracted to Jesus. And she didn't even just mean like the physical appearance of the person. She was like, I long for this intimacy with him, to be married to him for eternity. And you're like, this is weird, right? Right? But this is, this, this is important. This is where we need to step outside the cultural arena of marriage and look back to its purpose. Listen, Adam and Eve's marriage was not first and foremost sexual. Sex was a gift given to man and a woman to procreate and to enjoy each other. But it was not the purpose of marriage. Marriage is about faithfulness. Marriage is about oneness. Marriage is about love. It's about commitment. It's about submission. It's about obedience. And and that is what we think about when we think about him being the bride of Christ and being married to him and being one with him. It means that we will be under his faithful head. We'll be faithful to him. We'll be submissive to him. He will rule over us. We will love him because he first loved us. It's an unbreakable covenant. And this is a, a feast of joy. So when we talk about being married to God, take the cultural connotations out of it and look at the beauty of what it's saying about we are his. And he is protecting us and providing for us and leading us and loving us. You see, what people view as the purpose of something will be what drives their attention and their action within it. What people see as the purpose of something will be what drives their attention and action within it. You can see this clearly in the the difference between cultural, what they say about marriage, and the Bible and what it says about marriage. If, if, If marriage was created by God and it was created for God, then of course the world is going to redefine it. Is that a shock to anybody? No, not even in the slightest. The world rejects God. We should expect this. But as believers, how foolish, how wicked for us to cower to the world's definitions and standards of marriage and even live accordingly. As believers, we need to think about how our marriages are a reflection of the gospel and they are a vehicle to preach and proclaim the gospel. Just as our work or our vocation that we discussed several weeks ago is, no part of our life should be stepping outside of a gospel intentionality and purpose. Don't downplay the importance here of what we're talking about here. Because here's the reality. We have a tendency in churches and in sermons and in teachings and in conversations to conceal attributes of God. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you heard a message on election? I get it divides. When's the last time you heard a message on the tens of thousands of men and women and children that were slaughtered in the Old Testament because Yahweh said, go and destroy them? When have you had a a biblical message on the suffering and, and how we should rejoice our suffering and it's okay if you die from cancer at the age of 24? Where are these messages? You don't hear about the wrath of God like you used to because it's uncomfortable. It's, it's unco- it offends us. But pause. It should offend us. God should offend us. The fullness of God's glory and His holiness should offend us. It is disobedient to conceal attributes of who He is. Because that's what I'm going, I'm saying, okay, I want to write Tyler's eulogy, but I want to hide these, these parts of who He is. And I know they're core, but it might hurt some people. 
And God doesn't allow you to do that because in even his most offensive qualities, he's absolutely pure and right and good and holy. It's for his glory. So when you, when you put this in the context of marriage, in the same way, we should not actively conceal parts of our marriage that are meant to display the glory of God. And sometimes that means we display the weaknesses in our marriage so that people can see the forgiveness and forbearance and grace and mercy that comes from a loving God that comes in and keeps two people together in a world where they're saying, just split up. We shouldn't conceal these parts. With this, I want to look at the second part of a biblical marriage. That was my longest part this evening. The second part deals with the roles within the marriage. Okay, I want you to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to pick up in verse 22. Thank you guys for being so attentive. Beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your husbands. Another message that's not preached. (laughs) As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, I want us to pause there. If our marriages are reflecting God's glory and pointing to an eternal relationship, then we are to honor God in our marriage and reflect his glory by submitting to his purposes within the roles of marriage. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God created man and woman, but he created them differently. In fact, the very words, ish and isha, strength, man, soft, woman. It doesn't mean that the woman is a doormat or unequal or or somehow worse or less than the man, but they've been given very specific, different Roles. The woman, Genesis, the Genesis account says, she's a helpmate. And here in Ephesians 5, we see that the wife is to submit to her husband as the head. In fact, the word is to subject oneself to him in everything. All right, now, I'll say the obvious quickly so we can all take a deep breath and move on to the main point. There are certainly moments when a wife should not submit to a husband. Okay? And the husband, the reason is because the husband is not perfect, like Christ is. The husband is sinful, and the wife is to submit to him as in the Lord. The wife submits to the Lord first. Therefore, manipulation, coercion, any form of abuse are not areas that the wife should submit, but should seek counsel and help, okay? That's for another day. This is why the whole word of God is crucial. But I do want to say that many people put the emphasis on what I just said in this passage and ignore or try to weaken what Paul is saying here. But the term subject oneself, submit here, means that you're subjecting to your husband obediently as to an authority over you. So there is an obedient, subjective, submissiveness that comes with a woman to her husband. This indeed shows, listen, though they, are not, though they are not unequal, they are indeed equal, the husband does have authority over the wife. That's his role, that's her role. There are those today who see this as a feminist issue and will declare that this is outdated, it's 
wrong, sort of cultural thing. And what Paul's saying here is that women should have a servant mentality and not a submissive, authoritative. And this isn't a submissive, authoritative issue, but that is not what Paul is saying here. The husband has authority over the wife. He does. Women, if you're married today, your wife or your husband, I'm sorry, has authority over you. This is why personally, I cringe. There's a few statements that I hate. I cringe at them. The playful, happy wife, happy life statement. The, the, the heart and motive of that statement is not biblical. Now listen, when you're, when you're in your biblical roles, happy life with a happy wife, absolutely. In the context of biblical uh, understanding what that means, okay, that's fine. Let me, let me go to a, a worse one that really makes me cringe. Who wears the pants? Oh, well, she, she clearly wears the pants in that household. Or how about, yeah, sure, my husband's the head, but I'm the neck that turns the head. No! I, I seriously can't stand these conversations and these jesting. I'll tell you what, and Abby can vouch for me. And it's not because I'm manipulative or coercive. And if I am, you can call me out right here in front of everybody, and I'll repent, and I'll seek counsel. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, genuinely. If, I, if you're in a room with me and Abigail, and someone makes a, a joke about Abby wearing the pants or ruling the household... Abby will be quick to tell you she does not wear the pants in her household, nor will she. Am I wrong? I would encourage you in your own life, in your own marriages, to not play with those types of statements. It's a rejection of what God says in his word. Now, for all the women who are beginning to wonder who let the man in here to talk about women's roles in biblical womanhood, just pause, okay? I will be addressing the issues of the husband here momently, momentarily, but I will say this. Uh, from what I've heard in conversations I've had, women have the mentality sometimes of turning a man off when he talks about these things, or they're offended by it, or they see the abuse of it, therefore they just shut down and they don't listen. I would say to you women this evening, I'll address the husbands, but be patient and humble yourself. Rid yourself of this cultural feminist movement of the day and rejoice in the biblical womanhood that has been ordained by God for your good and for his glory. When you try to live outside the biblical womanhood and the role that God has given you, you are concealing part of his glory. What we just talked about. Don't miss that this is for you and it is for your good. When Paul says to you women to subject yourself to your husband, he's saying it with a measure in which you are voluntarily submitting it to him. Now this is important. This is your responsibility as a wife. It is not your husband's responsibility to bring you into submission. He should not have to do that. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying as a wife, you should joyfully and willingly submit yourself under your husband. It's a command. This is not a suggestion here. There's no clause, if you notice, given in this passage. There's no, okay, Paula, if Brandon does this, then submit to him with this. There's no clause. It's hard. It's humbling. It requires patience, especially when your husband might be wrong <laughs> and stuck in his ways like arrogant men often are and selfish men often are. I get that. But it is possible. And it can and it should be joyful. Wives, you should view your submission to your husband as a part of your commitment to the Lord Jesus. As a part of being faithful to the Lord. This means that you should support him publicly. You should speak well of him. 
You should encourage him. You should pray for your husband. You should read and meditate over Proverbs 31. Seek to be that woman. Be diligent in the home. Be faithful to your husband. Be hardworking. Don't be lazy. Be cheerful and not moody. Don't be manipulative. Don't be uh, lackadaisical in your love for him. Seek your husband's joy. Be disciplined. Be a preparer. Take care of the children. Teach and lead children and other women. It means so much more than this, but this will do for now, okay? We will have maybe either this semester or in the future a discussion of biblical manhood and womanhood. In fact, it may be something that we will run into corporately as a church here even in the next couple months. All right, women, go like this. Ready? Okay, thank you, Heather. Men. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Mike Melnick, this is for you. I'm just... <laughs> Me too, man. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Amen. I love myself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Man, the message for you here is simple. Love your wife. But Paul doesn't end there. He gives a very biblical description of what this love looks like, lest you define this according to culture. He says to love her in such a way that Christ loves you as the church. How Christ gave himself for you. How Christ has forgiven you and relentlessly, passionately pursued reconciliation with you. He says to wash her with the word of God. This this has uh, connotations of providing for her, leading her, protecting her. This is what we find here in Ephesians 5. Now let me tell you men, if your wives are not submissive, it may indeed be because they are rebelling against God. And in that case, they will need you all the more to sanctify them with the washing of the word and prayer and gentle, grace-filled leadership, not manipulation or coercion. This is one of the things... I constantly work on, right? But if they are not rebelling against God and they're having a struggle submitting to you, it might just be because you're a crummy leader and a crummy husband. And you should swallow that pill whole and you should repent before God and find a brother to counsel you and you should pray and you should fast And you should hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. You might just be selfish. You might be abusive. Maybe not physically, but maybe emotionally. Or by ignoring your wife. You might be manipulative. You might just simply neglect her. You might not make her feel safe. You might not be providing for her in every way. You may not be biblically Christ-like loving her. Listen to me. Your love for yourself, man, is instinctive. Am I right? JJ, what happens when you're hungry? What do you do? You eat. 
What happens, Herb, when you're tired? What do you do? You sleep. It's instinctive to look out for the concerns of yourself. And what happens here in Ephesians 5, we see that we ought to love our wives with the same instinction. It should be, my wife needs love, she needs support. I'm there. It's just an instinction. My wife is hungry. Let me feed her. She's, she's sad and needs support and love. Let me put my arm around her and pray for her. It's, an, it's instinctive. Genesis shows us that the two have become one. You are one flesh. And Paul says it here that he who loves his wife loves himself because she's a member of his own flesh. If you want joy in your own life, husband, love the living snot out of your wife. Biblically. It should be instinctive. You should be delighted in loving and providing and protecting and leading her. And Paul says that we do this a very specific way. Through the word. Sanctify her with the washing of the word. This means, husband, or man who wants to get married, you need to be a man of the word. You need to be leading your wife in the word. Now, people disagree with me on this. I'm convinced biblically. And so hear me clearly. Men, lock in with me. A husband that does not read and pray with his wife is sinning and is not being a biblical husband. Now, don't go legalistic with this. Don't go legalistic with this. I don't mean that if you don't, every day for 30 minutes spend time, forget that. But as a husband, you should find moments where you're praying with your wife where you're talking the word of God, you're sharing scripture, you're pouring into each other, you're intentional on when you see something happen in your wife's life or your own, you're humble enough to apply scripture to yourself and to your wife. And if this isn't you ever, you are sinning and you are failing as a husband. Why? Because you are called to be engaged in your wife's holiness and you cannot do this apart from the word of God. You will never love your wife if you're indifferent to her and if you see her as separate from yourself. And you will never be a part of her sanctification if you aren't a man of the word and teaching her the word. Abby and I, and she's not here, she's with Charlotte, she is in the building. She just stepped out. I wanted her to nod during this time. I didn't coerce her to nod, by the way. She hasn't read my notes. Stupid, okay. Abby and I have fought, and sometimes often, and sometimes poorly. Some of you in this room, Mike and I are examples. We, years ago, for reasons that are none of your business, sat down in Mike and Ellen's living room because we were at odds. And we were fighting and raising our, well, I was raising my voice. And, uh, and they counseled us. And they lovingly listened to my idiotic justification and craziness. Uh, Abby was definitely right there. And they loved us, and they supported us, they prayed for us, they went through for a season, of uh, uh, the beginning of a book with us. Other of you, uh, others of you have been there when I maybe not treated Abby the way I should, or she maybe hasn't treated me the way she should. But we have learned to communicate a thousand times better than when we were first married. And what I've realized is that when we've gotten into arguments, and I think she's wrong, or she thinks I'm wrong... I don't get to perform a passive-aggressive sulk until my wife swallows her pride and comes to try to make amends with me. I don't get to pout and go in the living room and do whatever the heck I want and ignore her for six hours until she can fess up and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please love me. That's not what I get to do. 
And let me tell you why, men. Because we are called to love our wives like Christ loved the church. Think about this. This is not what God has ordained for me. I'm the leader. That means as a man, I am in charge for reconciliation where there's a conflict in my marriage. I'm the one who has to instigate that. I am to treat my wife like Jesus treated me as a sinner. Let me ask you a question, men. Did Jesus wait for you to become repentant and deserving before he chased after you and drew you to himself? Did he wait for you? Did Jesus lead out in the reconciliation or did you lead? No, Christ pursued you passionately when you were worthless and full of sin and not deserving of any grace and mercy. This is how Christ loved the church and it's how us as husbands are to love our wives. Jesus did everything to win me and he calls me to do everything in the same way for my wife. And rest assured, my wife and your wife will joyfully submit to you when she sees how you delight and care for her and when you wash her with the word. Just as, in the same way, I am joyfully obedient in my pursuit of God because of the great love with which he's loved me. So I ask you a question, then we're going to give, honestly, four really quick practical applications. If you're married tonight, what gospel is your marriage portraying? Are you portraying the imagery of the glory of God and his gospel? Are you standing on the convictions of scripture? Are you rejecting the redefinition of culture? Women, are you honoring God and bringing him glory in your role? Husbands, are you doing the same? Things to think about and reflect. I want to finish by just simply saying, how do we live? I'll start by saying this. Marriage is not a personal lifestyle choice. Okay? Marriage is much different than what kind of coffee you want from Starbucks. It's not picking the prettiest girl, the the strongest man with the biggest biceps like Mike Childers. Right? You think that that's why Heather chose Mike. It's not. Okay? It wasn't the biceps. It's not a personal lifestyle choice. In Matthew 19, after the teaching about divorce and God's design for marriage, the disciples looked at Jesus. When it said that God instituted, God joins them together. When he finishes this conversation, the disciples looked at Jesus and said something amazing. They said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples trembled at the holy calling of marriage and said it would be better not to marry. There was a deep fear of the Lord and his institution. There's a holy reverence for this office in which God uses to display the glory of himself. Their understanding of marriage in that moment was changed and they thought it better to not marry. Now, Jesus responds that this is not the call of all, it's the call of some. Just like Paul said, but the Bible also teaches that beauty, uh, the beauty of marriage. Remember, God performed the first wedding. You remember, God said that he, uh, he, it was not good for man to be alone. Remember, the Proverbs say that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So it's not that we're called to a monastic way of living of rejecting marriage, but we're called to a holy living within marriage. So our, our number one, you can put this up for me, Heather. Let's read this together. The fear of the Lord and a high respect for the institution of marriage is what our first application should be. We should have a holy fear of the Lord and a high respect for the institution of marriage. This is described in everything that we've said for the last hour. So if you want to know what, is that, what does that mean, 
everything I've said for the last hour. Second, you can put it up. We must, and you can read this with me, be distinct from the world. I think of Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think of Philippians 2, as lights in the world, right? In the midst of a crooked, crooked and, twist, and twisted generation, we're to shine as lights in the world. I think of 1 Thessalonians 4 and Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, our new creation. We should refuse to succumb to the pressure of our day. We should refuse to separate attributes of God from his fullness. It is not loving to be tolerant. It is loving to be biblical. You hear me? It's not loving to be tolerant. It's loving to be biblical. Be distinct from the world and unashamedly so. With great love in which the Father has loved us. Number three. Prepare for marriage, not weddings. Listen to me. I will speak more on this in two weeks when we discuss dating or courting. Well, I want to address it tonight. Because we have many singles here. We have many people who are about to get married or rejoice. You well days, the Demores, where's Melissa? I know you're here. Know Nick's working. I got the, the future childers, right? Maybe others have feelings for each other and you just haven't expressed it yet. Right? Uh, whatever. Uh, many of you, may, or maybe young uh, married people, some of you older, I, I personally thought I had a beautiful wedding and I'm convicted by my wedding. I remember communicating early on. I didn't want the type of wedding that I had. I wanted a simpler one. I was outvoted. It's fine. I probably should have been more vocal. I'm not blaming people. I'm just saying, Abby and I both actually want a little simpler of a wedding. So for any of you who are about to hear what I have to say, uh, I didn't perfect this. Some of this is wisdom from a person who failed at this. But this is something that I see in preparation for marriages today. We as a culture, even in the church, have put so much emphasis on the event of a wedding rather than the life and commitment of a marriage. It's no wonder so many marriages fail. Often young couples will be engaged for a year or two. That time will be full of planning and preparing for an event, daydreaming about a night or a moment or a week. You invest financially. You invest with your time. You invest with your talents. You invest with your emotions. And all of this goes into a 25-minute ceremony, if it's that long, with a three- to four-hour party. But often, during the same amount of time, very little time goes into preparation for the marriage and the union of a man and a woman. Did you know that the average American wedding costs $26,444? What? You know, the reality is that the majority of parents who pay for wedding or young people who pay for wedding go into debt for their marriage, wedding. Not only that, but how about this? I have an issue with this. The traditional all-American dad response to a young man who asks daughter for, his daughter for a hand in marriage, the question typically tends to be, do you have a job you can provide for? I think that's a good question. That was part one of Mike's question to Gannon. There was a part two. That's a good question, but that should in no way be the only question. There tends to be too much concern over if the young man is able to take care of his daughter financially, and often zero discussion of what it means to lead the daughter, his future wife, spiritually, physically, and emotionally for the glory of God. You know what I hate? I hate the stories. I hate this. Young men, if you have a daughter, if you're so blessed to have a daughter, I plan to do this when the first man shows interest in my daughter and wants to come over and hang out in my house on a separate couch from my daughter and we can have family devotions together. I can't wait. You know what I'm not going to do? 
because this is stupid, I'm not going to sit at the front door with a gun collection. That's foolish. That makes no sense. I wish I could say to every father who jokes about this, put the gun down and pull out the sword. Pull out the word of God. How dare you think that this is going to intimidate some man and you're going to let him go have, have his way with your daughter, spend a few hours out in town, all this kind of nonsense, and yet you won't sit down and say, this is what the word of God says about a relationship that glorifies God. I'll even take it so far to let you know, here's areas I've made mistakes. So let me pour into you and tell you what it looks like to be a godly man and prepare you for marriage. But we're preparing for weddings. And we think it's cool to say something like, here's my gun collection. Who cares? I don't, I don't even know what that even means. There's so much concern. So much time and preparation put into the wrong things. Young, how about this? Young couples today see no importance in marriage counseling. That is one of the most arrogant mindsets you can have approaching your marriage. How arrogant do you have to be to think that you and your wife would be the exception And we'll get along just fine. And the transition will be just totally okay. How foolish to set no time aside as a young couple to talk about ambitions with godly counsel. To talk about finances with godly counsel. To talk about theology with godly counsel. To talk about ministry with godly counsel. To talk about household responsibilities with godly counsel. To talk about children and geography and family dynamics with godly counsel. But today, the wedding has eclipsed the marriage. And what happens is we've got a nation full of beautiful weddings and the ugliest marriages. This does not honor God. Weddings have become a time to indulge in all kinds of sin and call it a celebration of marriage. And we act as if God is involved in the celebration. Receptions can be full of overeating and drinking and debts and money that should not have been spent. Impure dancing, impure music, coveting and jealousy and comparing outfits and immodesty. Thousands of dollars that people can't afford. And all the while we think that God is in the middle of it because we've given a 10 minute message, a prayer, and maybe four counseling sessions. If you look at this, you'll find that Christians are just as guilty as culture for redefining marriage. And that's why we're failing. Prepare for the marriage, not the wedding. It's no wonder two-thirds of the women who have an abortion identify as a Christian. It's no wonder 77% of Christian young adult men look at pornography at least once a month. It's no wonder that 30% of Baptists in America are pro-choice. Let that sink in. It's no wonder 30% of Christian marriages end in divorce. We've begun with man not God. We've made everything about us, not God. But marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about your spouse. Marriage is about the glory of God and the gospel of God. And finally, I'll end with this tonight. Practice forgiveness and forbearance. This is where the imagery of marriage is crucial. Hebrews 3.1 tells us as holy brethren to consider Jesus. The word means meditate on him, chew on him, understand him, to know him, to conform to him. Jesus displayed perfect love because he is God who is love with all of his other attributes, not by itself. And this love was radically displayed in his forgiveness. It's the greatest display of love, sacrifice. It's the greatest display of forgiveness, sacrifice. Your marriage will need daily forgiveness. Amen, Evans? Right? Amen, Childers? It will need daily forgiveness. And to this, you cling to 1 Corinthians 13. 
John Piper tells us that having a biblical understanding of wrath is crucial here in our marriages. We think, why is having a biblical understanding of wrath crucial in my marriage? That seems depressing. (laughs) It's not. It's hopeful. And this is why. Without a biblical view of God's wrath, you will be tempted to think that your wrath and your anger against your spouse is simply too big to overcome. And their sin against you is too much to forgive. And this is because you must not have ever really tasted what it is like to see your infinitely greater sin under God's infinitely greater wrath being overcome by God's radical grace. Forgiveness and forbearance. I want to finish with a story and then we'll go to small groups for those of you who can stay. You've been patient. Thank you for your time this evening. John Piper, I want to highly recommend this book. To those of you who are going to be married, I'll get you a copy. I'll get you a copy. And I'll get you a copy. All right? And anybody else who's in a marriage, I'll show you where to buy it. <laughs> I'm like, my, my contingency's running low. Okay. Phenomenal book. I, I read it before I got married. It's, it's probably my favorite book on marriage. John Piper's called This Momentary Marriage. And in here, he gives an example in the context of forgiveness and forbearance of something that him and his wife, Noel, have practiced for years. It's called the compost pile. All right? Lock in, and then I'll close this in prayer. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. Sounds itchy. He doesn't say that. I said that. Sorry. No commentary. Picture your marriage as a grassy field. You enter it at the beginning, full of hope and joy. You look out in this beautiful field, the future. You see beautiful flowers and trees and rolling hills. Marriage is going to be the best. And that beauty is what you see in each other. Your relationship is the field and the flowers and the rolling hills. But before long, you begin to step in cow pies. Some seasons of your marriage. You ever stepped in a cow pie in your marriage, Beth? A few of them. Some seasons of your marriage, they seem to be everywhere. Late at night, they're especially prevalent. These are the sins and the flaws and the idiosyncrasies and weaknesses and annoying habits in you and in your spouse. You try to forgive them, endure them with grace, but it's difficult and they're everywhere. They have a way of dominating the relationship. It may not even be true, but sometimes it feels like the field is gone and all there is is cow pies. Noel and I have come to believe that the combination of forbearance and forgiveness leads to the creation of a compost pile. That's where you shovel the cow pies. You both look at each other and simply admit that there are a lot of cow pies and you've both contributed a significant amount. But you say to each other, you know, there is more to this relationship than cow pies and we are losing sight of that because we keep focusing on these cow pies. Let's throw them in the compost pile. When we have to, we will go there and we will smell it and we will feel bad and we will deal with it the best we can. And then we are going to walk away from that pile and we're going to set our eyes on the rest of the field. We will pick some of our favorite paths and hills that we know have no cow pies. And we will be thankful for the part of the field that is sweet. Our hands may get dirty, our backs may ache from all the shoveling, but one thing we know, listen, we will not pitch our tent by the compost pile. We will only go there when we must, 
This is a gift of grace that we will give each other again and again and again because we are chosen and we are holy and we are loved and we are forgiven. All right, let's pray. God, I want to honor you as a husband. I want my wife to honor you as a wife. I wish I could go back to the foolishness of my quote-unquote dating days and slap myself in the face. I wish I could go back to the preparation leading to my marriage and focus less on the wedding and the home. I wish I could take back words, actions, thoughts. But Lord, you have been gracious in all of these things. And you are revealing a beautiful part of your gospel and who you are in these parts of our marriage. Our marriage reflects God's forgiveness. It reflects His faithfulness, His mercy, His love, His truth, His oneness, unity, a covenant. I pray that our marriages in here, for those of us who are married, would reflect the glory of God and that we would practice with great joy biblical manhood and womanhood. That we would not conform to this world, that we would know what the Word of God says, that we would practice forgiveness and forbearance. I pray our young people who are not married yet or are leading towards that would prepare for the marriage and not the wedding. I pray that they would see the biblical worldview of marriage. I pray, Lord, that you would allow for us to find great joy and rest in the fact that you are in control of all things, that we cannot thwart your plan, that you will indeed receive all the glory that is due your name, but we want to be a part of that, O oh God. So change our thoughts and our minds. I don't assume that everybody agreed with everything I said tonight. But I do pray, Lord, that all of us, with whatever we may disagree with, would go back to the word of God, that we would not go to ourself, that we would not go to what offended us, we would not go to our traditions or what we think is right, but that we would go to the word of God and say, Lord, am I wrong in my thinking here? And change my mind, renew my mind and my thinking, and give us grace to move forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.